Welcome to the Future of Money podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to today's event on the international implications of central bank digital currencies or CBDCs organized by the Digital Euro Association. My name is Jonas Gross. I'm a co-founder and chairman of the Digital Euro Association, and I'm really thrilled to be joined today by amazing experts from the field of digital currency, namely John Frost, senior economist of the Bank for International Settlements. Hello and welcome. Ashley Lanquist, a project lead um, uh, yeah, in blockchain digital currency at the World Economic Forum. John Velisarios, Global Managing Director, Blockchain and Multiparty System, Digital Assets, Custody and CBDC Lead at Accenture. And last but not least, Tyron Xi, a Senior Research Fellow at the National University of Singapore. So first of all, thank you very much, of course, for the people, the audience for joining. And also thank you very much to you guys um, for joining the panel and have this, this discussion with us today. The event format will be as follows. We will start with a 20-minute keynote by John Frost, um, yeah, basically introducing the topic of international implications of CBDCs or how CBDC can impact cross-border payments. And this presentation is based on two recent publications by the Bank for International Settlements. We will also put into the chat later on. And afterward, we will do a deep dive into this topic via the panel discussion with all the experts here. So John Frost, Ashley Lanquist, John Belisarius, and Tajun T. And yeah, last but not least, we on our agenda, we will have a Q&A session. So if you do have any questions, we will definitely have 15 minutes for you to, to ask them. And how you can ask the question, I will just show in a second because we use a specific tool. Right, so before we start with the content for today, I would just very briefly take the opportunity to present the Digital Euro Association to yourself. So this is the um, yeah, kind of think tank and association that is organizing this event today. Um, so we are basically a think tank around digital money, if you want. So we basically focus on implications of central bank digital currencies, the topic of today but also of stable coins, crypto assets, and some other forms of digital money, as for example, commercial banks currently think about issuing uh, yeah, commercial bank money on a DLT, for example. In particular, we focus on the digital euros, um, but this does not mean that we only focus on CBDCs, so the digital euro, the ECB, for example, um, discusses, but we also focus on the digital euro from a blockchain perspective. So this means we also focus on the, the private sector digital euro, if you, if you want, this is basically, yeah, the digital euro in the form of stable coins, tokenized e-money, etc. So we basically both address this public and the private sector initiatives. And um, our mission is actually to uh, contribute to the field and the political discourse through yeah, research, education, providing a platform, etc. And for us, it's really, it's really important to um, stay independent and to kind of shape the discussion on the future of money. We basically built the Digital Euro Association on three different pillars. The first one is education, then community, and last but not least, a collaboration. So with education, this is, of course, also what we're doing today because we're hosting events, we're hosting panel discussion, we're hosting keynotes, we will also introduce a podcast very, very soon. And besides that, we also plan to do um, research um, in, in uh, starting just in a few months, hopefully, to also address these topics from a more, um, more scientific and more detailed perspective. 
Besides education, we also want to build a community around all these digital money topics. So today we basically, or we are really thrilled to consist of already approximately 200 experts in the field of digital money. So ranging from yeah, central bankers, um, legal experts, uh, startups, technologists, um, consultancy experts, etc. And uh, yeah, we are of course working to exchange, to enlarge our community and also to build a, a, a network, a really big network around the digital aspects of money. Because for us, it's really important that, for example, we are the think tank people go to if they, for example, want to connect to people in this sphere. Or, for example, if somebody, a company is looking for a legal expert in the CBDC space, for example, then we basically want to be here to provide such a context. right? And this is also one mission of the Digital Euro Association. And as a last pillar, we also foster collaborations. This, of course, comes from the community aspect that we bring um, yeah, similar-minded people together that are really interested in shaping the future of, of money and also the future of the digital euro and foster these collaborations both on a an, an scientific perspective but also hopefully in the future on a prototype perspective. Yeah, so if this sounds interesting for you, we have, of course, also different possibilities to participate in, in our association. So for individuals, you can basically become a fellow or a DI expert. What this basically means is that you can, um, can apply to become normally a fellow. You don't have to have any pre-knowledge about it. So just if you want to be um, yeah, up to date about digital money, want to subscribe to our newsletter and also want to be affiliated to the DIA, you can become the DIA fellow. And for a specific set of DIA fellows, we also have the possibility to become DIA experts. So this is basically the people that yeah, kind of address these topics, I wouldn't say on a daily basis, but maybe on a weekly basis. So also do very, um, very detailed research or practice projects, etc. So this is how individuals can participate. And besides that, we also have um, for a few months that companies can join. So if you as a company want to be part of the DIA network, you can become an active member or a supporting member. For an active member, you would basically become part of this and would get access and would also receive voting rights and later on also could be part of our working groups we will establish at the end of the year. And if you are a supporting member, you can basically fully exploit like the, um, the, the benefits and the services we offer when it comes to being affiliated with the DEA, also human resources and matchmaking, etc. So um, yeah, about panel discussions, events, um, etc. So if you're interested, you can, of course, reach out to us. We are um, there on, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, so social media presence, but you're also um, available, of course, to be reached via email. And we also have a website um, we just put in the chat. So if you would learn more, want to learn more about this association, just let us know. We also have a newsletter if you want to be up to date monthly about what's going on in the digital money sphere, then you can uh, also just subscribe to this newsletter. Right, so this was it actually from an introduction um, perspective. Now I'm really happy to kick off this great event today. And maybe, um, yeah, just one last uh, last aspect before, um, yeah, before we, um, bef before we kind of go uh, into this into this event um, format. And this is basically how you can uh, how you can ask um, uh, questions. And how this actually works is that we use a tool which is um, which is called um, Slido. So what you can do is um, that you can go to um, to slido.com. I will just briefly share my screen again. So if you want to ask questions, go to slido.com. You can insert here the six-digit code. And if you do this, then you are basically in the question room for today, if you want. And from there, you can ask any kind of questions you have. 
Um, so feel, please feel, feel free to use it and please do not use the chat in, in YouTube, right? So please use all, um, all this uh, Slido tool. We also inserted the information in the YouTube chat so that we have basically no, um, no we have uh, the data and the question collections uh, centrally at uh, Slido. And what you can also do, and we would kindly ask you to do so, is you can also upvote other questions. Because in the end, we have 15 minutes to answer questions, maybe a little bit more, and we will in the end answer the question that have received the most, uh, the most likes, right? So please also feel free to, to like the questions you would like us to answer, because in the Q&A, we will later on start from um, the, the highly ranked questions then to the questions which are um, a little bit uh, less um, liked from the audience, maybe not from us. <laughs> Right. So yeah, that was, that was actually it of the introduction. Now I'm really, really looking forward to this topic. And yeah, I mean, to, to kind of kick off this topic, we've seen that kind of every central bank looks into this topic. I mean, there is this a great survey by the BIS indicating that almost 70% of the surveyed central banks kind of look into the CBDC um, sphere. And um, this really means there is a really, really high dynamic. But when we look into industrialized and uh, advanced economies, we also see that central banks remain quite cautious and still kind of try to figure out the design, right? And one design dimension is basically what to do with CBDCs for cross-border payments. So should it be open for, for non-residents, for foreigners? Should it be restricted? Or should there be a wholesale CBDCs maybe for the interbank settlement that really works uh, or can kind of improve the current system um, related to the, to the settlement of payments in an international layer, right? And this is all questions and all promises uh, CBDC can bring. But of course, this also has risks as probably kind of everything um, also related to CBDC. So I think this is a really, really interesting and highly relevant topic. I also think that this has not received um, as much um, attention as it uh, as it actually should receive, but I'm very happy that actually, yeah, kind of um, lots of the panelists today also researched it. So John Frost with uh, the BIS with a recent paper, also and Tajun with a, a paper they released, I think, one or two years ago, and also John um, with, with Accenture and the Swiss report and, and Ashley as well, right? So I'm really looking forward to this. I think we have a really good um, set of experts for that today. And now I would love to hand over to you, John, um, for us to please like introduce the topic and present like your like the, the paper you have basically previously um, published, because I think this is really a very good starting point to address the topic CBDCs um, from an interna international um, point of view. So the stage is yours, John. You're still muted. There we are. Thank you very much, Jonas. Um, thanks for the invitation. I'm just going to check that the screen is visible. Looks really good. Thank you. Wonderful. Yeah, so it's it's a pleasure to take part in this event. Uh, thanks to Dea for the uh, invitation. Um, and as Jonas mentioned, I'm going to draw on joint research, um, actually two papers. Uh, one, which is a stock take of work on central bank digital currencies around the world, uh, which is joint work with Rafael Auer and Giulio Cornelli. And the second one, um, which is a newer piece and that addresses specifically the cross-border dimension of CBDCs, is joint work with Rafael Auer, Codruzza Boar, uh, Giulio Cornelli, uh, Henry Holden, and Trace Verli. I'll state at the outset that uh, these are my own views, not necessarily those of BIS, and we're very happy to make uh, available links uh, to uh, these two papers, as well as some other work that we've done recently looking at CBDCs and their potential, both in the domestic and the cross-border context. 
So to kick off, I'll just talk about uh, the work on CBDCs. Jonas mentioned that you know central banks around the world are working on CBDC research and development, and I'll talk about that. There is a lot of heterogeneity in the CBDC projects around the world, but there are also some commonalities um, and, and some important commonalities in the design uh, that I think are important to underscore. When we look at the cross-border use of CBDCs, uh, this can be either in the retail or wholesale dimension. So a number of central banks have given thought already to how non-residents may use a CBDC domestically or abroad. And in the wholesale dimension, uh, there's a lot of potential of so-called multi-CBDC arrangements. And there are broadly three models for these. I'll, uh, I'll talk about these as well. Finally, I'll conclude, and, uh, and I think that the meat of our discussion will then be in, in the panel discussion with the other panelists. So just to kick off, um, CBDCs are really an idea whose time has come. If you look at the last five years, um, you know, there's been a debate on CBDCs for quite some time. There have been some central banks that have, uh, you know, done, done experimentation with uh, digital currencies um, already, you know, even before 2016. Um, but the, the stance on, uh, on the actual promise of CBDCs has, has changed notably. So in the period 2016, 2017, 2018, a number of central banks um, you know, were, were working on these issues and central bank governors and board members made clear in speeches that uh, there is active work and thinking on this, but uh, especially in the retail dimension, we're looking at retail CBDCs, there wasn't yet um, uh, any, any plan um, to uh, proceed any further than, uh, than conceptual thinking. And there were a number of central banks that said, um, you know, openly that uh, they don't see a, a need or a use case in the in the short term. But in the course of 2019, 2020, and 2021, um, things have changed a bit. A number of central bank governors have um, made clear that they do see more of a use case for CBDCs. There have been consultations. Uh, there have been a number of announcements about actual proofs of concept, uh, pilots in some cases, and now, as I'll show in just a minute, two live CBDCs um, in the world retail CBDCs. And you, you can also see quite a bit of uh, work in the wholesale uh, dimension uh, and a number of announcements and, and speeches uh, that really you know, make the case that wholesale CBDCs uh, could contribute to the efficiency of payments and settlement uh, also in the cross-border context. So we've tabulated um, research and development projects on both retail and wholesale CBDCs, and that's displayed here, again, with the cumulative net stance of speeches in black, just to show how this is developed along with uh, the public communication on these issues. And you can see that um, especially the number of central banks who publicly communicated about uh, retail research has increased quite a bit, but there are also uh, retail pilots. And I mentioned the two cases, so the Central Bank of the Bahamas and the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank have now actually launched retail CBDCs that are in use in, uh, in those two jurisdictions. If you look at this, uh, this map, and uh, I think that things like this will be familiar, of course, uh, the CBDC tracker by UNS and others um, uh, and, uh, and you know, the Atlantic Council, a number of um, institutions have, have put out uh, heat maps showing um, where in the world uh, CBDCs are being researched and developed. Uh, this one is, uh, is based on our own database, uh, which is in each case uh, so based solely on official central bank um, sources. But you can see that there are quite a few central banks that have either uh, retail uh, work, um, so research in kind of the, the pink, uh, or a pilot completed in red and a pilot ongoing in darker red, 
or they have wholesale work denoted here in blue. And in a number of cases, central banks have both retail and wholesale work. So particularly in the Euro area, uh, there's work both by the ECB and individual national central banks. Um, also in Canada, in South Africa and Australia, uh, there are, uh, there's research at least on both the wholesale and retail front. Now, each of these CBDCs um, for retail or wholesale use is being developed in the context of an individual jurisdiction with its own challenges uh, in starting conditions and policy goals. So there is quite a bit of heterogeneity um, in the approaches taken, but there are also a few key commonalities. So let me just briefly touch on those now. So looking at heterogeneity, there are a number of ways of classifying uh, central bank digital currency projects. Uh, distinguishing between their characteristics. And one uh, that we go into great depth uh, about in the paper on the rise of the central bank digital currencies uh, is uh, the CBDC pyramid, which classifies four different attributes of CBDC projects. The first is architecture. This has to do with the, the relative role of public and the private sector in a CBDC project. The second is infrastructure, whether it uses uh, distributed ledger technology or conventional uh, technological infrastructure. The third is access. This concerns whether it's um, based on anonymous payments, uh, token-based access, or rather some form of identification, uh, loosely considered account-based access. And finally, critically for this discussion today is interlinkages. In particular, whether uh, CBDC is meant primarily for national or for international use. And you can see that across all of these dimensions, uh, central banks uh, are taking a range of approaches. On architecture, um, you know, a growing number of central banks uh, is considering a hybrid or intermediated architecture where both uh, the private and public sector play, uh, play strong roles, where private sector payment service providers do retail-facing services, but the central bank operates the core of the system. On infrastructure, you can see a mix of conventional uh, DLT and, and both conventional and DLT uh, being used in, in uh, both research and, and development. On access as well, those um, uh, central banks are looking primarily at account-based, primarily token-based, or even both, and perhaps with tiering, whereby uh, smaller transactions can be done with anonymous tokens, but larger transactions uh, are, are account-based, um, also for AML CFT issues. And in each case, there are a number of central banks that are undecided on these specific features and that are keeping their options open and considering um, all of the design options. But what's really striking uh, relative to um, you know, just one year ago when this paper was first put out, we're seeing a really big increase in the number of central banks that are thinking about the international dimension and international interlinkages for their CBDCs. And uh, I'll talk more about that in just a minute. So this uh, is the heterogeneity that we see in, um, in, in central bank um, digital currency research projects. A commonality uh, is that in, in all the cases that we've surveyed, uh, central banks um, are considering CBDCs as a complement to, not a substitute for cash. In the vast majority of the cases, uh, central banks are considering designs in which the private sector also plays a key role, in particular in performing retail-facing payment services. And again, um, a commonality uh, is that um, there's you know, growing uh, attention to the international dimension, while central banks are considering CBDCs often for domestic reasons and in line with domestic mandates, uh, there's greater attention over time to their potential also to help in the cross-border dimension and to facilitate cross-border payments. 
So let me start with the cross-border use of retail CBDCs. And I'll be drawing for this primarily on the work uh, on CBDCs beyond borders um, that uh, surveys 50 central banks around the world uh, with regard to their uh, the cross-border use of their retail CBDCs or wholesale. Now, most central banks have not yet made a firm decision on the use of the potential future CBDC by non-residents within their jurisdiction or by non-residents outside their jurisdiction. So you can see that among the 50 central banks that we asked, uh, in both cases, more than half are undecided about the use by foreign residents or the use in other jurisdictions. That's shown in the two panels here on the left. But what's notable is that there are a number of central banks, about a quarter of those we asked, who are considering use by foreign residents, for instance, tourists, business travelers uh, coming to their jurisdiction. Uh, for instance, the People's Bank of China has discussed with regard to its ECNY project that uh, it will be available for use by tourists um, and, and other non-residents in China, also uh, in light of the uh, 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. Um, and there are a number of central banks who say initially they may not have uh, the CBDC open to, to non-residents, but uh, they may potentially do so in the future. And we see a bit of a different pattern uh, for um, use in other jurisdictions. So this is use by non-residents outside the jurisdiction of the issuing central bank. Um, there about a quarter say that they're not planning to do it initially, but they may do, do so uh, later. Um, and there are, again, uh, quite a few that are undecided. You can see that there is a correlation between the two. Those central banks that are considering use by foreign residents are also more likely to uh, envisage use uh, outside their own jurisdiction. Now, the use of the CBDC um, outside the issuing uh, central bank's uh, jurisdiction, as well as the domestic use of foreign CBDCs, does raise a number of potential uh, risks. So central banks are taking seriously the concerns about facilitation of tax avoidance, loss of oversight by domestic authorities, um, and other issues due to the use of a foreign CBDC uh, in their jurisdiction. Um, some are also concerned about undesirable volatility in um, exchange rates. Um, and there are a number of other, uh, other concerns. So if you see this last column, other, this includes AML CFT risks, cyber risk, ease of settlement, um, emergence of a foreign CBDC as a dominant vehicle in the domestic market, so-called digital dollarization, uh, as well as imbalances of capital flows and a number of other concerns. And I think that one thing that's important to emphasize is these concerns are being taken very seriously, and they are an input into the discussion of design of central bank digital currencies. But there are techno uh, technological capabilities to mitigate a number of the risks. In particular, tying a CBDC to some form of identification could be very powerful in uh, reducing some of the risks of so-called digital dollarization. Uh, in, Having you know an account-based CBDC or or at least some form of uh, identification, also in a token-based system, might entail that uh, both the issuing central bank and the central bank of the uh, receiving uh, jurisdiction would have uh, oversight and and control over these uh, this use, and this might be a, a very powerful means of mitigating some of the risks that central banks are concerned about. Um, again, uh, there is a correlation. The, those, uh, those central banks that are concerned about, for instance, loss of oversight and NEVX volatility are also concerned about um, uh, you know, use of uh, foreign uh, CS CBDC domestically, et cetera. Um, 
and these are active uh, issues in the international discussions, uh, also those taking place in international working groups hosted by the BIS. Now, an additional policy tool that some uh, jurisdictions have access to is FX restrictions. Um, so at least uh, about a quarter of the jurisdictions, the, the central banks we asked, have access to uh, restrictions on the use of foreign currency. Uh, to address FX mismatches um, or to prevent uh, dollarization. Most uh, of those that we asked uh, do not have access to those tools currently, but a number would reconsider if there would be widespread use of a foreign CBDC or indeed um, a, uh, a foreign stablecoin. Let me get to multi-CBDC arrangements. And again, this is something that's more relevant in the wholesale dimension, but where a number of central banks see quite a bit of potential for um, new arrangements to facilitate cross-border payments. So there are broadly three models for multi-CBDC arrangements. And I'll just briefly sketch these before saying what central banks are, are actually considering in practice. A first model is, uh, is, is relatively modest. Uh, this is an arrangement with just enhanced compatibility between different CBDC systems. So imagine in one country you have CBDC system A. Uh, it has you know, an interface um, for, um, for use by uh, retail and household um, or by uh, financial institution users. Um, and it has a legal system that, uh, that underpins it. Um, and in another jurisdiction, uh, you have CBDC system B that has its own arrangements. Now, uh, the technical and regulatory standards underlying uh, each system, of course, will depend on the uh, characteristics of each jurisdiction, but there are possibilities to make them more compatible with one another. So you could think of uh, coordinated messaging formats, you know, ISO 20022. Um, you could think of, um, you know, uh, different privately offered corresponding clearing services being coordinated um, and, um, and having uh, common technical standards that, uh, that underpin them. So this requires some degree of regulatory coordination between the central banks, but it's relatively modest. Um, and of course, the gains from this arrangement would be perhaps more modest than, uh, than the ones I'll discuss next. A second model is an interlinking uh, model for uh, CBDCs. So imagine now that you have shared technical interfaces or the use of a centralized or decentralized common clearing mechanism. And an example uh, for this is Project Jasper Ubin um, by um, uh, the Bank of Canada and MAS. And I think we'll, we'll be able to hear maybe perhaps more about this uh, later on. Um, this requires somewhat further reaching cooperation between the central banks um, to uh, agree on, uh, on these shared technical interfaces but it also in, involves uh, potentially greater efficiencies in, uh, in cross-border payments, uh, potentially lower costs, um, higher speed, and, uh, and ultimately um, smoother cross-border payments than currently. And a third model is integration into a single MCBDC system. So multiple CBDCs can be run on a single platform. Um, and uh, the BIS Innovation Hub is considering a couple of examples. For instance, the so-called MCBDC Bridge or Project Dunbar. Uh, there would have to be mutually recognized ID schemes. So again, assuming that um, you know the, the CBDC is based on some form of identification, it would be important that central banks in the different jurisdictions uh, at least recognize one another's ID schemes to make this work. There would also have to be a single rulebook and governance arrangements and a single infrastructure uh, and ledger. Uh, 
So this is a fairly far-reaching form of cooperation between central banks, but uh, would have potentially the greatest um, uh, benefits in terms of efficiency. When we ask central banks about their plans, uh, we can see that um, you know a number, of course, are not decided yet uh, regarding MCBDC arrangements. They are looking into it, but uh, many have not yet uh, taken a firm decision. Among those who have, it's especially the second model, the interlinking CBDCs uh, that seems to be popular. And there are central banks that are considering uh, models one, enhanced compatibility, and model three, integrating CBDCs as well. Uh, there's a range of approaches to interoperability, to MCBDCs and to FX conversion. Um, so a number are considering interoperable features uh, to reduce frictions in cross-border and cross-currency settlement. A number are not decided. And there are some central banks that are actively considering a role of the central bank in the FX conversion process. And overall, uh, just to make the concept clear, um, relative to today's system, which is primarily bank-based and relies on a correspondent banking network, where the payer um, makes a payment from their originating bank through a respondent bank, which goes to the FX market, uh, pays into the correspondent bank, uh, and then the receiving bank of the payee. An MCBDC system, uh, MCBDC arrangement, could simplify the process dramatically, the payer uh, interacts through a, a PSP um, with the CBDC uh, system in their home jurisdiction. Uh, of course, there still needs to be FX conversion, and there's still an FX market as before uh, to, uh, to take care of the um, mismatches in, in currency and the need to exchange them. But uh, also on the receiving end, um, you know, because the CBDC is a direct claim on the central bank, because there's instant settlement, um, things could be much faster, more efficient, and lower cost. And you can see that um, the the route um, is uh, is much more direct in this system than in the current uh, system with uh, with correspondent banks uh, across borders. Now, again, the BIS Innovation Hub is working on a few different projects. Um, I mentioned the MCBC Bridge already. Uh, which uh, brings together uh, Hong Kong, uh, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, the Bank of Thailand, the People's Bank of China, um, and the Central Bank of the UAE. Uh, and that's a, a, the third model, the MCBDC, um, single MCBDC system, uh, and that's currently um, underway. There are also uh, projects such as Project Jura between the Swiss National Bank and the Banque de France, um, and, and Project Dunbar, uh, which are looking explicitly at uh, cross-border wholesale payments. Let me conclude. Um, again, central banks are ramping up their work on retail and wholesale CBDCs, and we see this in the stock takes of central bank work around the world. Um, as mentioned, CBDCs, both in the wholesale and retail dimension, could ease frictions in uh, cross-border payments relative to the current system. On retail CBDCs, central banks are tentatively inclined to allowing use by tourists and other non-residents domestically. Uh, they seem to be somewhat more cautious about use beyond borders. Uh, there are concerns about monetary implications, uh, AML, CFT, a number of other issues, but these can be mitigated to some extent with an account-based design or reliance on some form of identification. At the wholesale level, 28% of surveyed central banks are considering MCBDC arrangements, uh, models one, two, or three and about 14% are considering some role in FX conversion. 
And overall, there's clearly much work still to be done, but a very strong role for international coordination so that central banks can work jointly on the issues facing them all and also work in collaboration with uh, innovative players in the private sector to improve the overall system. So with that, I will hand the floor back to Jonas and looking forward to the panel discussion. Perfect. Yeah, thank you very much, John, for this really great, uh, great keynote. I think this is indeed a very, very good starting point to uh, yeah, start talking about these international implications. And um, we have also in the YouTube chat um, posted the, the papers you wrote, and also what um, Tao Jun basically wrote um, almost one or more than one year ago about these topics. So if, if anybody's interested in, in the views, of course, besides the panel, you can read it here. And um, also thanks, uh, thanks John, um, for for this paper in general. Because I think what's really nice is to 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 kind of get a to to kind of lay out who we currently stand, right? So which different um, options exist for getting CBDCs connected, right? So to address it and also to see, of course, what central banks. And consider, but we also see, I guess, uh, that we are quite early in the race, right? So um, we see from your your data also that lots of central banks are still undecided, and this is also, of course, imagine motivating us to do more um, events as this today because this aspect is clearly in its infancy, and it really has to be talked about this um, about pros and cons um, a lot more. Right. So again, um, to maybe uh, yeah, also introduce the others again. So with us, um, Ashley Lankris from the World Economic Forum, and John Valisarius from um, Accenture, and also Tajun Chief from the National um, University of uh, Singapore. So maybe to to kick this off, um, what what John basically uh, did in the keynote is also kind of explaining where CBDCs can help, right? Because I think this is like the, the, the first question to ask, where are the risks, uh, where are the issues, and which issues can CBDCs basically address? And here, um, Sean, you, you laid basically out uh, down that there are kind of um, yeah, efficiency losses, I would say, right? So if you have lots of intermediaries, you have respondent banks, corresponding banks, et cetera, which make the current system on average, at least kind of slow and also kind of expensive. And here may be the question to, to all of the other panelists, um, what, what do you think? So um, do you think this is like the, the, all, the only and also the main reason, or do you think there are, are other issues that do exist in the current system and that a CBDC from an MCBDC perspective, so getting different CBDCs um, connected be addressed via a CBDC. So whoever wants to answer is um, very free to do so. Yeah. So I'm happy to comment on that. I think that, you know, very much, uh, I think from a cross-border perspective, there's a, a tremendous amount of uh, applications for CBDC, um, primarily because of the friction associated with cross-border payments, the correspondent network, the delay, the time, the counterparty risks that are there, uh, costs as well. I think, and then the FX uh, component of it, I think, creates sort of a, an environment where a, a multiple uh, multiple CBDC implementations can, I think, have a, a, a very positive uh, impact on 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 sort of the any of the inefficiencies that are currently in in this cross border space. Um, in the wholesale space, I think there's also a number of applications, and we see that, of course, with the, the rise of digital assets and the growth of the whole digital asset space. And I think you know you can you can have a, a digital security or a digital financial instrument, but you you you, you settle it through sort of traditional payment rails. Um, and I think I, I think that having a digital uh, CBDC to be able to do that uh, reduces the counterparty risk associated there. And, and finally, I think on the retail side, there has been a lot of um, projects that are that are popping up everywhere. I, I think the case for retail is uh, is 
a bit more challenging and I think it's a bit it's a very jurisdiction specific it's very sensitive to sort of local uh, uh, local considerations of course um, and I think there it's on a case-by-case -case basis but I think definitely on the cross-border side there's a, a tremendous amount of opportunity there to take inefficiencies out and 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 compress and collapse a lot of the time and and uh, and reduce the risk associated the counterparty risk associated with these kind of transactions I, I could jump in with a follow-up as well so building off of that um related to compliance and anti-money laundering which is of course a major component of the cost of cross-border transactions uh I, so in the multi-CBDC, maybe the, the number three uh, arrangement, the integration into a single system, or in any, of the, in any of these others, how much do we think that we can collapse that component? And it, you know, it, it almost seems quite intractable. Um, anyone? Yeah, I mean, I comment right, on that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think... I, Sorry, go ahead. No, actually, As, I guess just to round it off, it, it seems like we're we're talking. We it, it doesn't seem possible to have immediate cross-border payment potential given that. Well, I, I think there there are ways to address sort of uh, interoperability, of course, uh, functional interoperability, like the stuff that was done on on, on the Jasper Ubin project, which we, we which we did, I think, was uh, was a first sort of foray into the space to to, to try to achieve that. Uh, but as sort of uh, there are a number of of, of approaches to, to to look at that, and and having one single system or one single CBDC platform. Maybe too ambitious. Um, it may be where it goes anyway, but it's difficult to see at this point. But I think, especially given the fact that there are a number of different initiatives that are that are happening sort of globally uh, and progressing at different paces at different rates and so on, I think that's going to be the ultimate challenge of how do we coordinate that. How do you en enable things like interoperability? Is there a set of standards? And I think that's where the role of the BIS and other parties, I think, will play a key role in trying to corral and bring a lot of the, a lot of those different initiatives together under one roof to make sure that they are in ulti ultimately interoperable and, and can can work together. It's a hard, it's a difficult answer, I think, because we don't know yet how how much of this will progress at what pace and who does what first. Um, but having all doing it all under one sort of under one umbrella, I think maybe a little bit uh, a bit of a challenge because there will be certain parties that will have already advanced on their own. I guess Tarjun, you also wanted to add something, right? Yeah. So, so I'm coming from a more macro point of view. I think so. And so, so, um, one slide from John's uh, one one of the John's slides was quite interesting. I mean, for 2019, almost uh, very few central banks were interested in CBDC. It was only until after the pandemic, then a lot of central banks start talking about um, uh, central bank digital currencies and so on. So I think one of the change in the pandemic is that the, the trade component stays there. And at the same time, the global e-commerce has become more and more um, prominent. So that involves a lot of small payments, small amount of transactions. And with the, the old inefficiency, I mean, previously, the cross-border payments were mostly used for B2B um, transactions, which involved large amounts, and the corporates usually don't care about the, the transaction costs, and therefore there's a large margin for the legacy system to, to make profits from there. But now with the growing global e-commerce um, 
uh, e-commerce um, landscape. So um, these small transactions, they require small transaction fees. So definitely the legacy system was not going to work anymore. And I think that motivated a lot of central banks to start thinking about cross-border payments and also um, like interoperability of the, the payment system as well. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. I think uh, lots of different um, reasons have been named why why a CBDC can improve this. So maybe to summarize, I mean, of course, um, increasing efficiency when it comes to settlement of interbank payments. Also, what John said when it comes to the settlement of different assets. Also, what you said, Harun, with a, a small with the like a smaller type of payments. Um, maybe we also have, have heard a lot about these benefits, of course, by by John. But maybe, of course, with every benefit, of course, kind of also comes a risk in the end, right? So here, maybe to to also turn. To, to this side because of course also to get people people active it's of course and i think it's really really high potential and high benefits but of course there is also the other side right so what what would you think what are the most severe um, risks you see with respect to to um to using cbdc's for for this cross-border dimensions and here maybe starting uh, with you john uh, john frost since you were not in, involved in the last question so there's uh, there's certainly a debate about um, CBDCs and about um, the potential of I think especially token-based CBDCs uh, to be used in um, you know ways that uh, you know might uh, encourage money laundering uh, or you know uh, bring about digital dollarization. So um, you know the, the, by digital dollarization we mean the displacement of the domestic currency by a foreign CBDC in daily transactions or also in financial contracts. Um, so, you know, this is a risk. This is something we have already in a number of jurisdictions around the world. There are dollarized and euroized economies where, you know, cash uh, in many cases is used um, in daily transactions where, you know, even uh, mortgages and other financial contracts are um, denominated in a foreign unit of account. Um, so uh, this is certainly a risk that um, a number of central banks have talked about. And again, I think that this can largely be mitigated through the use of, um, you know, some form of identification that allows both the issuing central bank and the, the central bank in uh, receiving jurisdictions um, to uh, have some control over the transactions. There's another risk that gets talked about a lot, but I think is a bit of a red herring. Um, and that's the risk that, uh, you know, a, a CBDC um, could, uh, you know, become a reserve currency, could challenge the dollar's status as a global reserve currency. I think there's a lot of uh, discussion, particularly with re regard to the ECNY, that you know it'll, it'll dethrone the dollar just by virtue of, uh, of being digital. And I think that uh, this does not seem uh, very plausible. Indeed, the reason that uh, currencies become global uh, reserve currencies uh, is because you know they, they have very deep capital markets behind them because there's trust in the long-term value. There are a number of because they're used in uh, invoicing of international trade or you know uh, assets. Um, there are a number of um, of economic factors behind reserve currency status, and it's relatively infrequent that uh, that uh, you know the dominant uh, reserve currency uh, has changed. You know the last time was was pound sterling in the 1930s. Um, so I think that this uh, this issue gets talked about a lot in the context of CBDCs, and I think is probably a bit overblown or hyperbolic uh, in some quarters. Yeah, and I uh, to build off, I think the audience could take a fr mental framework of okay, what are the unintended consequences to the issuing country, and what are the unintended consequences to the to the other to the other to the other country. 
uh, who has access to home country foreign CBDC accounts. And so we've been we've been talking about many of those, like uh, the risk of illicit activity that could be happening uh, if foreigners are able to use your account, then they're using your money for illicit activity. But it could also be the foreign country. Um, yeah, the, the foreign country could be doing tax avoidance uh, and doing shady things with your currency outside of its own jurisdiction. That, of course, the, the digital identity could help to address that. And maybe you could imagine cooperation between countries on the order of how banking uh, data cooperates as well around or data sharing around that type of activity to reduce that uh, risk as well. Um, both countries would be having currency fluctuations if there are heavy flows. So if foreign country is using home countries, CBDC, the home country currency would appreciate at the cost of the foreign country as well. Um, and the foreign country, country B, could experience uh, capital flight as well and loss of deposits in its commercial banks and investment products as that money goes to the to the other country that has the CBDC, um, which ha would have major repercussions in that country. Uh, but of course, and I think the BIS, the new annual report uh, that, that John uh, Frost was a co-author of CBDCs and Opportunity for the Monetary System, does a good job of talking about this, but really both countries, either home, the home country or the foreign country can not tolerate or not allow the other one to participate. So if the foreign countries, you know, doesn't want these negative effects to happen, they could ban their citizens from accessing that other country's CBDC and vice versa. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Ashley. And maybe, maybe let's uh, coming back to one aspect, one what Sean said, um, because I think what's what's really interesting is that um, the, the the Chinese project, the project DC and Rice, is really very often be seen in this international um, context of kind of disrupting the um, the role of the dollar, kind of right. So, and you Chan said that this is basically not. Um, from your perspective, not indeed um, a severe threat because this takes takes very plenty of years and decades to emerge, right? So this is nothing which which uh, which happens from today to tomorrow because it often relies on values, maybe and political uh, environments, etc. And but but what I'd be interested in, in in your view or the aspect is because what I think when I thought about this question is basically, I mean, I guess there are also lots of countries that are. I would say kind of indifferent in which currencies they do their, their transactions, right? I wouldn't say that it's most of them, but I think there are some of them. And if you now have maybe assuming in China um, an, 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 a CBDC that just assuming potentially is open for, for these people, right? For the foreigners. Um, and this is there maybe a few years before other industrialized countries. Um, isn't this a situation that, that, that still the Chinese um, currency could gain? I mean, could of course not gain to become from one year to the next, the most important currency, but still um, severely increasing in importance yeah so i think that um again i think that it's uh it's useful to uh you know have an inclusive dialogue on these things and also to hear from the people's bank of china what they say about um you know their their intentions and they make clear that they you know will do foresee uh, the availability of the ECNY to foreign visitors to China. And they also have, you know, uh, broached the idea that uh, the ECNY could be used in cross-border trade uh, in the Belt and Road Initiative, for instance, so in neighboring countries um, in, in East Asia and, and Central Asia. Um, 
So certainly at the margin, you know, having a digital uh, version of a currency can be very convenient. Uh, you know, could uh, mitigate some uh, some current frictions in, uh, in in payments for trade flows. Uh, Taojuna mentioned uh, cross-border e-commerce, which is a really interesting area that's really um, you know I think going to be more important going forward. And certainly the ability to use um, you know a, a CBDC in cross-border e-commerce uh, could be could be relevant. Um, and there could be, you know, l larger t trade flows as well that could be denominated in, in renminbi um, and paid for in, in ECNY. But I think, again, it's very important to uh, separate uh, the issues. Um, the reason that countries become, you know, a, a, a widely used currency abroad, um, you know, for uh, trade invoicing, for instance, is because both parties, you know, in, in a cross-border transaction agree that uh, this is the logical unit of account uh, for their purposes. Um, you know, they have trust in the long-term value that it'll be, you know, won't fluctuate too much relative to their domestic currency, that they have the ability to hedge, um, you know, positions uh, in the you know, foreign currency relative to their domestic currency. And I think that, you know, um, having a currency that's useful for invoicing trade, um, you know, relies on not having capital controls, on having deep and liquid capital markets that are available for hedging purposes, for instance. And it's entirely possible. I mean, the, the Chinese authorities have been working to internationalize the renminbi uh, to, you know, develop um, uh, capital markets. Um, you know, there's, there's been less uh, attention, I think, on, on um, liberalizing capital controls. But you know, there are. I'm not saying that there. It's impossible that um, you know the the renminbi or, or the renminbi won't play a more important role going forward um, in in trade invoicing. I'm just saying that uh, it depends on a lot more factors than than just uh, the digital nature of the asset of the currency. And um, and I think that again, it's uh, it's a bit overblown to say that the ECNY in its own right will uh, will have a very large impact on this, or that it's a primary motivation. And again, I'll, I'll let the PBC speak for <laughs> speak for themselves on this, but um, uh, they've made clear that uh, there are a number of other motivations, uh, you know, particularly uh, around uh, domestic payment efficiency, competition, etc., uh, that are the, their primary motivation, and not you know an attempt to make the renminbi into global reserve currency. Yeah. I just, I just to jump in there as well. I think one of the, uh, just an observation, I, I guess, as we start start developing more and more central bank digital currencies around the world, we now have the opportunity, uh, especially on the cross border and the multiple CBDC perspective, to sort of uh, perform these kind of sort of cross border uh, transactions in multiple currencies bilaterally between parties uh, with an FX provider, of course, and so on, not necessarily triangulated through any type of reserve currencies. And I think our financial system as a whole has been architected in a certain way and that sort of routes all these transactions through centralized systems. And I think uh, it's big, you know, multiple hubs and hub and spoke model sort of architectures and so on that we that we have. And I think what what we what we can do with this new sort of innovation is sort of uh, transact between parties. And I think that's an inter a very interesting uh, difference between sort of what um, a CBDC can do uh, in the future and and what we have available today. So, not to challenge sort of you know the the sort of the incumbents that are there and and what's what's happening, I guess in in, in terms of reserve currencies and and so on. But I think if you take a look at uh, neighboring countries, countries that do a lot of bilateral trade between each other, 
Um, and and because certain things are denominated in certain currencies, they have to buy dollars or they have to buy euros or they have to buy certain those currencies to, to, to settle those trades. Um, and and the, the time it takes for those transactions to actually complete as well. So procuring the, the currency, settling it, you know, and, and transferring and so on, those settlement times, uh, you need to factor those in. Now, if we compress and collapse all that, and are able to procure a currency that I can, I mean, if I'm if I'm selling uh, some goods, I want to get paid in my local currency. Um, and so so somebody who's who's buying it from me and now can procure sort of a CBDC and, and, and settle that transaction uh, uh, towards me, then I think makes it a lot more efficient and a lot more expedient as well. So there are a lot of things to consider with regards to I guess, uh, you know, global reserve currencies, the financial system, the way it's been architected, also the ability for us to transact um, in a more, in a different way, rather, uh, bilaterally with parties, um, of course, still with FX in the middle of it, but uh, with, uh, uh, in a much more um, compressed and a much more, maybe flattened um, sort of cycle. And, and I think that that's what makes this very interesting. Yeah, thanks for your for your insights there. And maybe one question to you, um, Tajun, and, uh, and and this is basically about what what you did um, almost one year ago is that you also wrote a, a paper, a more theoretical macroeconomic paper about these aspects. And we talked a lot, a lot about today about benefits and risk, right? And I would now be be curious. I would ask you to share what basically the results of your research basically were, because I mean, what you did is you kind of modeled um, and. A world with where such an international accessible CBDC exists, so I guess it would be interesting to see what basically your your findings in this simulated environment actually have been besides this prototyping, which is currently done, for example, by Accenture and also by the BIS. Yeah. So uh, yeah, thanks for mentioning our research. I mean, okay, so it's quite. So, I mean, it's quite interesting to find that in, in John's survey, a lot of central banks are actually keeping their doors closed at the moment. I mean, they don't want to. Circulated currency um, in the in the in the other countries, but that's kind of um, I mean it, it's reasonable because at the beginning no one wants to take risk and it's kind of a give. So each country needs to consider the other country's benefits and costs, so as to decide whether um, they want to do it or not. So in our research, we actually try to confine this digital currency within the boundary, and we find it to be beneficial actually to some of the emerging market because. This, this economy tries to stabilize the exchange rate, and at the same time they try they at the same time they lose their monetary authority or monetary autonomy within the country if they want to go for free capital flow. So in this case, having a digital currency that's confined within the geographical boundary actually provides these economies who wishes to stabilize their exchange rate an additional instrument that can stimulate the domestic um, economy. So in a way. They have the government bonds which are internationally traded and um, the exchange rate can be fixed via the policy interest rate. But at the same time, because the CBDC can never go out of the boundary, so they can use the quantity of the CBDC as a stimulus to encourage people to spend more if there is a low inflation or um, uh, remove the liquidity from the economy if there is a deflation in the economy. So, so in a sense, um, it is not a bad thing if the countries tries to confine the circulation of CBDC within the country. Yeah, so that's um, our point of view. But of course, if you want to go for cross-border payment for the CBDC, some interoperability, uh, some cooperation among the countries is necessary to avoid some of the exchange rate risk and uh, 
And uh, sometimes you may even face the risk of losing monetary policy independence, like one of the papers by Ulick um, and um, the co-authors. They talk about this um, when there's a global currency and uh, countries tend to lose their autonomy on the monetary policy and so on. Yeah, thank you very much, because I think for, for this discussion on these international implications, of course, it's really good to, to analyze this also, um, like descriptively also to do the prototypes, as I said, um, BIS Innovation Hub and Accenture is engaged um, at, but of course, I think it's also really interesting to have this research that really uses um, theoretical models, because, I mean, we don't have CBDCs live yet, besides then these uh, Bahamas and, and maybe the Eastern Caribbean as well, right? So, um, yeah, I think this is really useful. This is also why I really, really like these two different um, perspectives here on this panel. Um, so up to now, we, we did talk a lot about benefits and we also talked about risk. We kind of talked about uh, macroeconomic um, implications. And what I would now like to talk about is um, this aspect of interoperability, because, uh, John, in your presentation, you also mentioned that interoperability, I mean, really a, just a few central banks really say no to, to this, right? So it's, it's still very um, very open. And I think um, most um, also consider consider this. And I personally think that this is really important to have a high degree of interoperability than these uh, different CBDC systems can, if you if you want to uh, talk to each other properly, right? So that you can really um, exploit this full um, efficiency potentials. And for me here, would, the question would actually now be more from a technological perspective. And now the question is here, how to enable um, interoperability, which is, of course, a really, really a large question, and I know that lots of research is going on there. But maybe to start um, with the first uh, first direction, which technology would you say should be used? So is this something? Because I mean, for the most projects in the in the whole system, actually all of them, they are based on a DLT, right? For for these um, for these um, kind of use cases. So yeah, the question is, do you think that it should be um, should be the DLT that also um, reaches a high degree of interoperability if you use maybe the same DLT infrastructure or similar ones, or do you say does nothing have does nothing have to do with technology or what what would be your stances on on this technology um, question? Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so interoperability is very important. Um, and to, to start off with, um, I think that very frequently it isn't primarily a technological question. Um, very often the reasons for a lack of interoperability relate to policy or to um, you know differences across jurisdictions that are not primarily technological. I mean, there are cases where there are different technical standards, and you know for this reason it can be very uh, useful for central banks to coordinate early on. Um, and to agree on on technical standards, but you know one of the most severe um, you know, shortcomings currently uh, relates to the point that Ashley I think made earlier on. Um, you know uh, one of the reasons why cross border uh, payments are, are currently um, so inefficient, aside from you know the, these uh, measures that I, I mentioned, the long chain of intermediaries, is the need for AML CFT uh, compliance and the need to ensure on both ends of a transaction that um, you know, uh, PSPs know uh, who's making the payment, who's receiving the payment, um, and you know, to uh, check this against uh, the um, you know, uh, to, to to file suspicious transaction reports, um, you know, all of the uh, effort, uh, in many cases, manual effort that uh, that goes into that currently. And so, um, you know, one big area of interoperability, and one one thing that we discussed in the annual economic report that's out last week is um, you know the potential for mutually recognizing digital ID systems across borders. So this could be one very powerful way of supporting interoperability. Uh, this doesn't necessarily re uh, rely on any specific technology. What it relies on is that um, counterparties in different uh, jurisdictions 
um, you know, have a, a digital ID system, whether a public system, public private system, um, whichever model is used, and that uh, they can trust that the system on the other side uh, is also able to ensure compliance. So um, again, I, I don't think that it's primarily a question of which technology is used. It's uh, more a question of um, ensuring that there is this cross-border uh, cooperation. I think it's primarily a policy issue uh, and ensuring that you know, ID systems on both sides of transaction are um, you know, sufficiently high quality and are able to trust one another uh, to ensure AML CFT compliance. Yeah, it seems um, at the World Economic Forum's work on CBDC right now, we're also laying out these issues and we tried to think concretely about this as well. And it seems like the key value add of DLT could be uh, basically, and I believe this was in the MCBDC report of BIS, to provide an alternative solution to, that for cases where basically the countries can't agree on or, or don't trust anyone else to run some single platform, but where you really get that benefit of a shared ledger that's like actually shared. No one else, there, there's no hierarchy of any other countries that have more power over the ledger than anyone else. You'll still have, as Don was saying, all of the uh, policy coordination governance questions. They'll, they'll have to still set the same rules of governance, but at least this way, um, as one step, the ledger could be e equally owned, right? Which might not be achievable without DLT or equally controllable, perhaps. Maybe not. <laughs> now I'm questioning it myself. Thanks, yeah, um, um, I, I agree. And I think here DLT is, is really um, nice to kind of standardize in the sense, as you said, actually, if, if people don't trust or, or countries cannot agree on a set of rules, that here DLT can really provide like an environment where you don't have to trust any any other parties in this sense, right? So. But they'll still have to agree on the rules, right? They'll still have to agree on a set of rules. It's just that they'll have equal- Equal rules, to... uh, equal, yeah. yeah. Equal power. responsibility if you want, yeah. Yeah, um, and 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 maybe this this also leads me to my to my next question um, again to to everybody. Um, if, let let's just assume that in a in a futuristic world that lots of central banks already have issued a CBDC, um, like their own CBDC. Now the question is, okay, we want to do do the basically provide them or open them for for cross border. So this was basically the model Sean basically illustrated about um, integrated different CBDCs into one meta CBDC uh, layer or model if you want. And the question I'm very often asking myself is who should govern this layer? Um, so, so should it be like a private sector entity? I mean, we have heard uh, last year when we uh, come back to this Libra Diem project that um, it was actually said that this is something like, for example, they could do like a, a stablecoin platform, right? But from my perspective, what I would say is, of course, also some international organizations like the BAS or the IMF could do this. But as I said, this is just my perspective. So I would be very, very interested what you think who should who should do this and who would be basically the trusted party or the, the national central banks would kind of trust to, to manage their CBDC FX um, maybe uh, on the platform? Again, to everybody. Uh, maybe I'll let others answer first. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's, uh, depending on the, obviously there's a variety of different models for deployment and it's obviously, a, uh, it's a challenging que uh, question because we don't know how things will evolve and, and take shape, uh, I think. But there are, of course, approaches that you could that you could implement uh, solutions where 
you have um, central banks working with commercial banks to issue wallets to individuals who can then use the CBDC to transact in their own geography in their own jurisdiction. Um, and then allow that same sort of wallet to be used by others if, as long as it's registered and as long as it complies with different sort of uh, standards that have been set and so on. I think it's, um, you know, without getting into deep into the solutioning uh, perspective of this, I think there are definitely approaches that could be taken to harmonize a lot of this. Um, and, and I think the role of the central bank in defining sort of the standards and the, and, and the policies and the standards is key. I think the role of the commercial banks uh, in owning the relationship primarily with consumers at the end of the day um, and their role in a two-tier model, I think, is, is also very important. Um, they have been doing and could, could easily continue to do and, of course, should continue to do this going forward. Um, and I think that that's also going to play out, I think, in, in, in sort of local markets and, and so on. And I think all of that under one umbrella, you know, different solutions and different technologies and approaches, but all of that in, a, in an interoperable under, you know, one umbrella of, 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 of CBDCs that could be used by multiple uh, sort of uh, you know, consumers and users in multiple countries still under, you know, the, the, the uh, under the sort of the guide of, of, of a central bank for its own consumers and its own currencies and so on but also in a way that could be interoperable and could be used across different geographies um, as well, could be, could be the right approach. But then again, solutioning very early in the day. But now, of course, also to John Frost, right? Because I brought the BIS into the game, right? <laughs> sure, so I won't, uh, I won't answer that very directly, but I will say ah, this. It's a shame. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh certainly you know the the infrastructure for cross-border payments um you know the, the underlying infrastructure and and to some extent the infrastructure for the payment system itself i mean there are elements of a public good in there and so i think that having purely private provision of some of these core infrastructures could be problematic because you know the private sector may not always have the right incentives to uh, ensure the public good nature of the system um to ensure for instance uh, low cost um payments for, for everyone, universal access, safety and, and soundness, um, integrity. So there are a number of central bank public goods that underpin the payment system, both in the domestic and the cross-border context. And I think um, another point that I'd make um, you know, is that payments very often um, to, to you know, function smoothly, to, uh, to you know, enhance efficiency, they, they need to be built on, uh, on a foundation of trust. Um, in the domestic context, you know, again, uh, there, there's a reason why, um, uh, you know, central banks uh, play a role and have a mandate for the efficiency of payment systems. Central banks, you know, function as, as a trusted, um, you know, institution at the center of payment systems. And in the cross-border context, um, you know, central banks can make use of the fact that they have relationships with each other. Central banks have trust in other central banks. And often, you know, um, these, these direct, uh, you know, relationships and, and uh, networks of trust um, can be harnessed, and this is something that you know we're, we're seeing in the uh, projects of the hub that I mentioned. You know, central banks have relationships with one another across borders, um, can uh, cooperate and agree on on uh, shared standards, for instance, uh, and this can uh, be a force that um, you know harmonizes um, uh, you know standards and rules across countries that um, allows for a shared foundation on which private sector. Um, 
uh, innovators can uh, can operate. So there are open questions about how to you know the exact governance of a system, but I think that um, we have international experience with you know kind of cooperative oversight. We have international experience with um, you know shared systems where public authorities work together uh, to operate a system. And uh, and we're experimenting now with uh, with models and, and seeing this again in the BIS Innovation Hub projects, where central banks would work together and, and potentially even jointly operate infrastructures uh, across borders, or um, you know harmonize their own uh, CBDC systems in such a way that they uh, are interoperable across borders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for your your insights there. And maybe as a last question before we come to the to the Q and A, because there are also lots of. Uh, questions also to the audience please feel free to ask uh, ask question also um uh, like the questions i've seen that you did this quite uh, quite heavily so please continue to do so um so what my question would be now um, let's assume there is a central bank that uh, wants to focus on these um uh, kind of international um, international aspects of cbdc so that basically that the central bank has the goal of increasing um, efficiency in cross-border payments because from their country uh, transactions are just very expensive right um in this case what would you think would be like the the better um, focus to set so should it basically focus on retail or on a on a wholesale cbdc because you also john laid out that of course you have these two different alternatives in the end right but in this use case what what would you say um again to to everybody and what would you say which variant to choose or to try to play with if we want i think that wholesale is much more uh straightforward i think in terms of uh implementation and and sort of gaining sort of the practical uh, knowledge and experiences and so on i think it's uh, uh you know you don't have to deal with complex things like consumers and consumer behaviors and all that kind of stuff i think at the end retail is a more complex undertaking for those reasons and, and others as well um and i think that in terms of um there are a lot of uh, so i'll call low-hanging fruit but a lot of you know valuable lessons to be learned and, and also implementations to and things to gain from uh, on a wholesale side as well um and it also depends you know on what the challenges are in each you know in, in in your respective jurisdiction right so it's a difficult again difficult to answer because there may be some things that are very specific where retail may make more sense um but you know i think that with all of that sort of aside i think you know uh, or that being sort of a, a taken out of the consideration i think if you look at sort of wholesale versus retail wholesale is more straightforward to implement the solutions around I actually take a slightly different, I mean, wholesale is, of course, it's easy to implement, but um, the more importantly, it should be for the retail CBDC to, to be implemented. That's what my, what I'm thinking, because I, I, I'm thinking the future of cross-border payment will be initially driven by a few aspects. Number one would be the retail remittance. People working abroad, they want to send money home. So these um, constitute one of the major group of people who wants to use cross-border CBDC. And then the next would be the global e-commerce where people sending and buying things online and they need to make small transactions and but then when you aggregate all the small amount of transactions it, it is going to be enormous and then the number three will be the growing role of um, small and medium enterprises when um we see that a lot of more um, small and medium enterprises start growing and then they, they reach out to the international customers and they need to have some kind of um, settlement methods so this will require some um, cross-border um, cbdc and um um, and I, I do think that these are where the, CB, the retail CBDC is going to fly. And whereas for the wholesale CBDC, 
um, in the in the past in the in the olden days when people when when um companies doing the B2B transactions, those um, settlement methods are already already there and we just need to replace with um, the updated technology. So um wholesale is easier, but then the more beneficial part will come from the retail series. I have a question for John Frost as well. I think I'm missing something related to the to the MCBDC arrangements, particularly Model Three, the integration into a single system. It was said a few times that that's mainly for wholesale. What's the main reason that it's not for retail? Is that just because of massive operational and cybersecurity complexity, or something else? I'm missing. <clears throat> The, the the experimentation today is uh, is in the wholesale space, and um, I think that uh, you know as with any um, shared infrastructure, of course, the complexity does increase. And and the point that John made is is well taken that uh, complexity, of course, increases when uh, when you have um, retail participation. Then it becomes much more you know there are more much more issues around uh, around digital ID. There um, you know, and I think that. Uh, the MCBDC bridge, um, which uh, has been communicated about, um, you know, is, is currently uh, bringing together central banks uh, from four central banks uh, from across Asia, and um, in, in the wholesale space, um, it is, you know, in, in thinkable, of course, to do this in the retail space, but uh, but the projects uh, are, are now focused on wholesale. Yeah, great. So maybe to, to wrap this uh, up this panel before we go to the Q&A. So we've, I guess we have seen that there are lots of uh, benefits and also potentials. Um, yeah, these, these MCBDC arrangements can have, right? So both from a wholesale perspective, but also for, for a retail perspective, that it also seems that the central banks really seriously look into this aspect, but that most of them are still kind of undecided, right? So I hope, John, that you do this uh, survey now again, also do, as your other survey in a um, very regular manner so that we see how it is maybe in one or in two years and um, so i guess there is still some some decisions of course to be taken which uh, which road to go um but of course there are also risks when it comes to to monetary policy monetary sovereignty and um, also compliance we mentioned right there are also limitations when it comes to interoperability which technology to choose right who manages the platform etc so i guess it's really good to to kick off this uh, this topic also to do lots of projects as as, as i mentioned some of you are are doing and um yeah to see how this how this progresses so I, what i would really like is to have this panel then again in maybe one year to see what has changed right who has looked into this this progress has has been made um yeah, so thank you for your insights in the panel. And what I would now do is, is basically, um, yeah, go to the Q&A session. I just uh, share my screen again, because what we see here is this uh, Slido tool I just mentioned. We have already 20 questions. So for everybody, if you want to ask a questions, question, please, please go to slido.com. You see it on the left-hand side and insert this code, um, 8331764. Alternatively, you can also scan your QR code and ask uh, the question. Of course, what I didn't mention yet is I should have done this in the beginning that if you want to have this question assigned to a specific person, you have to indicate this, of course. Maybe this was my fault, too late, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, still very confident that we basically get really good answers to the questions. And uh, yeah, and I'm also, besides that, I'm very happy introduced to, to uh, introduce my excellent uh, colleague, uh, Destan, who was also part of this um, project organizing in team and, and yeah, make this event uh, yeah with, with possible and was really uh, driving this with great effort. And um, yeah, Destan is now also joining me for the moderation of the Q&A and um, so we both will basically moderate this and, and ask the questions. 
Great. So maybe start with the first one. As I said, we are here quite democratically. So the ones with the most like appeared on top and we will basically go um, row by row if the questions seem appropriate. So the first one is, um, yeah, as I think most of them, not, uh, not particularly on the international aspects of CBDC, but also on CBDCs in general. And here the question by Christoph is, uh, what is, in your opinion, the advantage of CBDC? For example, in our case, the digital euro over current digital money, so bank money, um, is when the amount is limited, for example, 3,000 euros. So I think here the question is, uh, what's the use case for a CBDC if you have a, a limited uh, a restrictions for payments or maybe for an account balance, what the ECB, at least what you hear, um, is uh, currently at least considering? And here again, question, since it's an indicator, nobody open to anybody. So whoever wants to, wants to answer, please feel free. So I can give a response on this one. Um, so, uh, you know, as, as is discussed in the BIS annual economic report chapter that's out last week, CBDC is an opportunity for the monetary system. Uh, there are a number of, um, you know, potential um, uh, advantages uh, offered by CBDCs. And I think they really have to be seen in light of, you know, the digitalization of the economy, the growing centrality of data, um, the issues that, that brings around competition, around data privacy, around integrity. Um, so there are a lot of challenges uh, in payment systems currently, you know, as they become more digitalized. Um, and of course, uh, you know, we're seeing the entry of new players into the payment system. Uh, we're seeing the role of, greater role of big techs. We're seeing a lot of issues around, um, you know, data governance. And um, so really you should compare CBDCs in the use case, not to, you know, necessarily today's digital money, but uh, to, um, you know, what, what will emerge tomorrow um, uh, in the absence of, of this work. Um, I think that what's clear from the question is, you know, uh, a, a digital euro, or for that matter, any digital currency, you know, is being uh, proposed primarily um, as a, a new means of payment, as a payment instrument that can be used for everyday transactions. This is also why there are the discussions of, you know, uh, caps, and, and I know the ECB um, has communicated about this. Um, so, you know, just like cash is used primarily for kind of day-to-day -day transactions, um, a CBDC may be uh, designed in such a way that it's useful for, for you know, payments purposes, that it still has a limited footprint in the financial system. Nonetheless, it could, you know, increase privacy, it could enhance inclusion, so be a digital means of payment for people who are not banked or have limited access to banks or payment cards. Um, it could ensure competition, you know, it basically help to um, break through uh, walled gardens or, you know, um, kind of closed ecosystems uh, in, in digital payments. Um, and it could, you know, be a, a means of uh, ensuring that the public has access to public money. So a claim, direct claim on the central bank, similar to uh, cash and coins today. Um, I hope that answers the question. And of course, very happy for others to give their thoughts as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just comment, I add on, pile on top of that, I think there's a, there's a few sort of uh, things to con consider as well from, from uh, CBDC for consumers, right? At the end of the day, there's a challenge, I think, there where we, we need to be very 
careful in how we explain this, uh, I think for consumers as well, it's not a new payment scheme. It's not a, it's a different format of money at the end of the day. So I think it's, we need, that needs to be sort of coming out as well as part of that sort of the whole debate dialogue and discussion uh, with consumers and, and focus groups and, and, and things like that. I think that the, the, the danger is that we, um, we assume that most people will know what a, that's what is central bank money versus what digital money is at the end of the day. And we, and that is a, it's a big assumption. Most people won't even know the difference of that. And I think we need to be, uh, we need to take, take consumers along for the journey. Um, and I think there will be some very clear cases where it'll become very obvious why this is uh, preferred um, specific use cases and accessibility, you know, and, 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 uh, I think is very important financial inclusion in various topics. And I think this is an enabler for a lot of those things that, that where there are gaps in today's um, uh, access for consumers. All right, so the next question is coming from Wilson Huggins. Wilson, I'm sorry if I'm reading your name um, incorrectly. Um, so the question is asking the panel's view on the recent somewhat negative comments um, out of the US in regards to a um, digital dollar. Um, so, as you also know the news, there was a bad um, explanation about the skepticism for the digital dollar, um, especially looking at the, you know, the, um, the benefits may be outweighing the risks and whether the digital US is going to be um, adding towards the financial inclusion. Um, so the question is open to anyone. Uh, please take it. Um. I might not be aware of the specific context that was st stated, but if it's in relation to Powell's remarks a while ago, um, I think so. Like all of these, like all the economies are evaluating a massive set of complex pros and cons of CBDC, and there's a lot of limitations and downsides and risks. A lot of them can be mitigated. We've been talking about these mitigations and the risks, but. It, even if you take design and, uh, and other conscientious steps to mitigate risks, you still have some cybersecurity risk that's just never gonna be zero in terms of citizens' money getting hacked, citizens' data getting hacked, reputational risk of the central bank. And for some, uh, for a central bank such as the Fed, a massive burden on its shoulders in terms of continually operating successfully and smoothly uh, with already a, a large complex system. So central banks like the Fed and in other major economies have to think very, very carefully about this. And it could be very well the case that the pros don't outweigh the benefits right now. Um, yeah. Thank you, Ashley. Perfect. Um, thank you for your answer here. Um, and the next one now turns from the Fed again to the ECB. And here the question is, what is the panel's view again to everybody on the ECB's consideration to issue a CBDC in order to stimulate the demand for the euro for foreign investors? So I guess here it's referred to, I mean, the ECB lays out, I think, six different reasons to, to issue a digital euro. And I think one, uh, one here was basically to, to increase the international role of the euro, I think it is put. So yeah, again, the question to, to, to everybody, what do you think about this, um, this consideration about uh, yeah, using a CBDC to increase demand for uh, foreigners on the euro? If you have a digital euro, you, there's a utility factor uh, associated with that as well. So I think uh, then there are many countries as well that use the euro as a currency. And if it's digital and it's more, and there's a utility uh, uh, dimension 
solution to it because you can use it to make digital payments remotely and or what have you. I mean, I'm speculating, of course, what, what, how it would be used. But if there is a utility factor behind it, then I think it uh, and it would make it very interesting for for it for for retail wholesale use, commercial use, and so on. And I think if that is an objective, then I think enabling it, I think is is, is can create that kind of attraction and pull towards the usage of the digital euro. Thank you so much. So the next question is a bit um, hard one, I guess. Um, so is there currently a specific multi-CBDC model that the ECB is um, considering? So maybe we can, um, okay, now the questions, uh, the order has changed. But I already asked the question, so maybe we can handle this question as um, what could be the specific things that maybe the ECB should consider when joining into a multi-CBDC model? Or if you're aware of a currently specific multi-CBDC model, please um, feel free to take the question. It's a shame that we don't have an ECB representative on the panel that can, uh, can give a view on this. Um, but yeah, I think next time, hopefully. <laughs> appropriate to let, uh, let, let the ECB speak for itself on that. Yeah, this is, this is also fine. Then we are not, uh, not speculating. And next, I, yeah. I guess to briefly answer, it, I, I'm not oh. aware of any publicly stated uh, multi-CBDC platform. Yeah, I, I, haven't, I haven't heard anything like that either. Great. Um, thanks. Thanks for your, your answers here. Um, yeah, and here the question is, um, I think we, we can answer this quite easily. So international use of C linked to a DLT. I think we discussed this already, right? So that we said it can be a DLT that makes things easier if parties cannot really agree on a specific design, right? And, and want to rely on, on like this joint protocol then. Um, but I think we also did dis discuss this. Um, yes, okay. So, um, yeah, I, th I think it makes it makes sense to use the second question here. I think we should not talk about Salvador on Bitcoin because this is really off topic, even if this is interesting. But if somebody of you wants to comment, please feel free, but feel, do this um, for answering the second question. So, um, yeah, how do you evaluate the interplay between CBDC and privately issued uh, stablecoins? So here again, I guess about the use cases. So in the future, do you do we need a CBDC and stablecoins? Is there like just one out of the two um, out there? Will it coexist? And what are the use cases? I think stablecoins will will uh, continue to emerge, and I think they will play. It's either or. Initially, I think when we started looking at this, we felt that it was going to be you know CBDCs would eliminate stable coins but in reality I, I think that they will have they have a role to play and and they also solve different types of problems as well and i think if you have a stable coin issued by a large financial institution that is a global financial institution and it, it tokenizes or or it, it puts a stable coin in that that represents its balance sheet i think it has a different um uh, uh, remit in a different scope than a CBDC issued by one nation state or one country. So I think it has, there is a different, it's almost like a tapestry of different types of paint of, of currencies and, and a stable coin could play part of that. And I think I, I wouldn't, you know, discount it. I think it's going to continue for a while. And I think it will, it may even, you know, with the advent of new technology and new innovation, they may, they may just create new formats of, of, uh, of money as well. And it will be stable coins, um, I think they will they will continue to exist. 
All right, so the next question is um, who will pay the exchange fees um, and how will they be paid? Or will there be an international CBDC? And I think this question is um, kind of asking uh, how it's the, the clearing houses, is there going to be in the, maybe the international CBDC or MCBDC projects? And how is going to be the exchange fees shared? Anybody wants to answer that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a market play, right? At the end of the day, it's um, it's also finding a party on the other side that's willing to convert your currency for theirs, right? At the end, so the the challenge will be uh, how do you make that market very efficient to find those participants? Today, sort of, you know, you 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 go to an, an institution that will give you the best rate. Uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, but I think in, in this model, it, you will need to have uh, a marketplace where if I want to exchange my CBDC for another CBDC, I will need to, um, I'll need to find the best price for it. And I'll need to find out, I have to have access to a marketplace that, in order to do that. So the role of a marketplace, I think, is still very much there. Now, in terms of the fees that are associated with it, are they a matchmaker and they basically take a cut of that? Uh, are they, you know, are they in the middle of that transaction or do they just, do we just find each other? Uh, for instance, I want to exchange, you know, pounds for Euro and I find Jonas on, online or something and exchange it, but that there needs to be a marketplace for that in order for that to happen. So I think the, the role, the role of the, of the, uh, of the marketplace will need to be there. Um, how, um, how it will play out with regards to fees and so on, I think it still remains to be, de, uh, to be determined. Yeah, thanks, uh, John, for your, um, for your answer there. And yeah, maybe as a last question, because time is, is uh, already up. Um, so yeah, let's take the next one. Could there be a multinational CBC corridor with a clearing mechanism by creating a dedicated a clearing institution. So as I understand it, that basically there is one party that is clearing the settlements and these different CBDCs like uh, connect connect to. I think, yeah, John, this kind of, it, it seems to be, have in mind, like one of your, your proposals you basically laid out, right? I guess if I understand the question correctly. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that um, the options are still open at this point. I mean, central banks are cooperating on the issues and are looking at, you know, which uh, which institutional structures will best support uh, cross-border payments. And, um, you know, the, the, the central banking community certainly has experience uh, with setting up, um, you know, uh, institutions in the past that support international clearing. Um, and I think, you know, in, in the digital age, it'll be important again uh, to uh, consider the institutions uh, that can best support this. I think that, um, you know, as I mentioned before, there is a lot of work, uh, policy work and, you know, active technological experimentation uh, through the BIS Innovation Hub. Um, and, uh, you know, at this point, uh, there are a number of options on the table uh, to see which ones uh, will ultimately be most promising in supporting uh, the policy goals that the G20 and, and national governments have, uh, have set in the payment system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfect. So then actually the, the, the time is kind of up. So I really love the discussion. So thank you all for being here um, today to discuss with us, to share your insight, because we have a lot very diverse views on the panels, right? So more from practice, more from research, um, technology, international organizations, etc. So thank you very, very much um, for being with us um, today. 
we also had the question YouTube if we are allowed to to share the slides um, and, and Sean basically agreed that we can share the slides so whoever wants the slides um, uh, please feel, out, feel free to reach out to my colleague Daniel we have the email address on YouTube and he will forward the slides to you um, then the next uh, the next days um, yeah, with this, so thanks, of course, for the panelists being here, taking the time, um, one and a half hours, so I really, really appreciate it. Also, thanks um, to the whole DEA team, so for example, for Destan, to Daniel, and also Valentin, who really, um, and the others really support with this event. It was really a team effort, so, so thank you very much. And also for the audience, of course, to join, so also to stay until the end, and we highly appreciate it. And yeah, you can, um, you will definitely see new events and other event formats by the DEA, so I said we will host a podcast very soon. Soon. So if you're interested in that, just follow our social media channels. We will post it there, of course. And we will also have a next event at the end of uh, July about um, stable coins. So here about, yeah, kind of what's the use case of stable coins? Um, if, yeah, is there a role for the euro stable coins? Because currently it seems that this kind of lacks if you look at the market capitalization, right? So um, as I said in the introduction with the DEA, we both want to consider CBDCs, but also consider like really DLT-based euro-denominated means of payments if you want. So also stable coins, et cetera. So try to balance um, this one. So if you're interested in that, as I said, just... Um, connect to us feel free to reach out and thanks for joining and i wish everybody uh, really a great evening and thank you very very much for joining it was my pleasure thank you Jonas. thank you everyone thank you bye bye thank you bye bye, thank you. bye, -bye. Thank you.